Okay. So, we are at the bottom of 1 page 83, but we're going to start with our visualization of the field merit and surrounded ourselves, surrounded by all the sentient beings. Let's cultivate our motivation. So one of the difficulties we sometimes have generating bodhicitta is caring about those who we don't like or people who we think have harmed us. And our mind uh, rejects that idea of caring for them saying, but they're awful people, so how can I care for them? And if I help them, then they'll only abuse the help I give and hurt more people. And so then we dig in our heels and uh, back away from them and hold on to... uh, a very rigid form of um, repulsion or disgust in our heart towards other living, another living being. So here, it's good to not only remember that they've been kind to us in previous lives as being our parents or our good friends, not only that they've been kind to us in this life by whatever work they do in society that keeps things functioning, but to really hold in our hearts that our Buddhahood depends on them. And that they want to be happy and free of pain as much as we do. And then think, if I help them with a kind heart, that could alleviate their misery. And when they aren't so miserable, then they might stop doing all the things that disturb my peace. Because we usually forget that the person who harms us or does something that we just don't like or don't approve of, Why are they doing that? 
it's there they have an attempt they're making an attempt to be happy because at that moment they're not happy so if there's a way we can wish them well or even help to remove their unhappiness then they would probably act very different when we interact with them and when they interact with other people. So it's good to remember that. That it's not like the people we don't like are evil people who want to destroy things. There are people who are in in great suffering and have a lot of confusion in their minds. And that's why they're doing what they're doing. And for that reason, we care about them and want them to be happy. And caring about them is something reasonable that benefits ourselves and benefits them and benefits everybody else too. And so on that basis, we can generate bodhicitta, having love and compassion for them, and then practice the six perfections and proceed on the path to full awakening. So let's have that be our motivation this evening. Okay, so we've been talking about clinging. Yeah, link nine, clinging. And so last week we uh, mentioned that there were four types of clinging, and we talked about the first one, clinging to sense uh, pleasures and desirable objects, which forms uh, a great amount of what we do in our lives. Yeah, seeking out pleasant things and pleasant experiences. Okay. Then the second one is clinging to views. Now, we may not think that we cling to views very much. We may think, oh, most of my clinging is first sense pleasures. Yeah. Because that's really uh, quite obvious, you know, that we cling to sense pleasures, going around looking for them all the time. Okay, it's not to us always as obvious that we're clinging to views because whatever view we have, we think it's just the correct way of thinking. Yeah, that's all. So what's harmful 
about clinging to the correct way of thinking. Yeah, nothing harmful about that. So why is clinging uh, to views in, in this list here? So it says clinging to views clings to the view of extremes. You remember when we talked about the different kind of afflictive views? Yeah. So the first one was view of the personal identity. Yeah. So uh, clinging to the inherent existence or substantial existence, so on, of the person. And then a view of extremes is thinking that that the I that we grasp onto in view of the personal identity either is going to utterly destroy and get obliterated at death time, so that's the extreme of uh, nihilism, or it's eternal, like an eternal self that's going to go on to the next life. And that's the view of absolutism or sometimes called the view of permanence, the view of existence. There's a few different names for it. Okay, so uh, clinging to views clings, first of all, to the view of the extremes, thinking that, you know, either, yes, I am going on forever uh, the same way I am. Uh, There's a permanent person in here or an inherently existent person here, or thinking, I just totally go out of existence at death time. Okay, that's view of the extremes. The view holding wrong views as supreme. Okay, Uh, let's skip that one for a moment and go to the next one, which is wrong views. So before we hold them as, as supreme, we have to have the wrong views. So wrong views, especially the wrong view, disparaging karma and its effects, the existence of past and future lives, and so on. So here it's quite clear that it's negating something that does exist. Yeah. And in particular, something that is, uh, you know, a very important tenet for spiritual practice. Okay. Why? Because if we say, well, karma... Uh, you know, uh, the law of karma and its effects, it doesn't exist. What's wrong with thinking like that? Well, then we may not have any reason to uh, restrain ourselves from negative actions. Because if we think there's no result to our actions, then and the important thing is just do what you want and just don't get caught then uh, that's fine. Yeah. So there's no idea of uh, experiencing results aside from uh, the ones that come in this life that, you know, from the legal system or other people or whatever. Okay. And then we just say, okay, I'll do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. So that's really a damaging view because that gives us uh, permission to to do whatever we want, yeah, and then we get ourselves in a lot of big messes. Or if we say uh, Buddha Dharma Sangha don't exist, then we're cutting ourselves off from having them as objects of refuge. If we say enlightenment doesn't exist, 
yeah, because sentient beings are inherently selfish, then again, we're not going to try and follow the path to awakening, and we're not going to try and rein in our own self-centeredness because we, we just say, well, it's hardwired, you know, it's in my amygdala, and there's nothing I can do about it, um, you know, so forget about awakening. Okay, so those kind of views, you know, really limit us. And you can see that when people have those kind of views over a long period of time, sometimes uh, they become quite depressed because their life doesn't seem to have any meaning or purpose. Yeah, yes, it's gathering, you know, happiness of this life, but, you know, how many times can you do those things that you find amusing before it just becomes boring okay okay so that's one of the the wrong views and then going back then thinking those wrong views are the best views that they're the supreme views okay so you not only have wrong views but when other people try and discuss it with you, you say, uh-uh, my views are the best views, okay? And then you use some kind of reason to, to demonstrate why your views are the uh, correct views, okay? Like, well, you know, uh, prove rebirth to me. I don't think rebirth exists. You prove it to me, Yeah. And so we put it on the, on other people to prove something to us. Uh, but then whatever they say to try and help us understand it, we don't listen and we say, no, 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 no. Okay. So maybe we show them that, uh, that presentation that people saw a few weeks ago where, uh, that woman, you know, had so many cases of uh, people remembering previous lives. And you show that and you just say, just take a look at this, you know. And then they say, oh, they're just a bunch of actors, you know, that, that they didn't really have that. They're, they're just acting that, uh, you know, to deceive people. So then, you know, there's not a much, much you can say because those people are really thinking their wrong views are quite, quite supreme. Okay. Okay. So clinging to views is clinging to views of the extremes, clinging to the view, holding wrong views as extreme, and wrong views themselves, especially wrong views disparaging karma and its effects, the existence of past and future lives, and so forth. Okay. So I already talked about some of the disadvantages of clinging to those views. Here are some more. Clinging to views easily leads to dogmatism. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, like the people who stop you in front of the grocery store and try and convert you. Yeah, and you're just trying to go in and buy groceries and and they won't let you go. And yeah, okay. It, uh, clinging to views also breeds attachment to one's own religion and so denigrating other people's religions. So we may not uh, adhere to beliefs of other religions, 
Yeah. And on a philosophical level, we may want, you know, we can debate them and discuss them. But when people have certain beliefs and those beliefs, whether we think they're correct or not, help those people be kinder or help them keep better uh, ethical conduct, then we don't criticize those beliefs. We, we, you know, encourage them to, to have those kind of beliefs. So you'll sometimes hear, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama when he's talking, uh, to the public. Uh, I was watching something recently where he was talking to a group, to school children in Delhi. And, uh, and he was talking about, uh, you know, because they believe in God, they call their God by a different name. But, you know, His Holiness said, well, you know, if God created everybody, then uh, all these other people are God's creations. So if we, you know, respect God uh, and love God, then we should also love God's creations and be kind to other people. And so he explained this to to those children in that way, because that was according to the religious belief that they had grown up with. Yeah. So, you know, that's a way of showing respect to those people. And like we, we, uh, and to their beliefs. And like we talked last week, if somebody is dying and, uh, you know, how, how do we encourage them uh, to bring forth virtuous attitudes? Uh, when they're dying, then we talk ag- according to whatever kind of religious belief they have. Yeah? Because as long as it will bring up thoughts of kindness and compassion and forgiveness, then that will benefit that person. Okay. So uh, we don't want to have attachment to our own religion. Uh, clinging to views also leads to denigration of other religions to the extent that one forces one's own religious views on others, either by verbal coercion or threats of violence. So we don't want to become one of those people who pushes our views on others. If you have experienced other people pushing their views on you and you don't like it, yeah, don't do that to other people. Okay, so that's the second kind of clinging. The third clinging is clinging to a doctrine of self. So this is the view of the personal identity. That was the first one of those five afflictive views. Okay, so cling is the view of the personal identity that grasps the I and mine to exist inherently. Okay, so the I, the person. Mine, okay, the way they explain it is, is, is kind of strange because we say, well, what is mine? The thermos is mine. The table is mine. My body is mine. So when you ask the question, what is mine? You, you may list your possessions, whether they're part of your continuum or external possessions. Um, but the view of the personal identity is clinging to the I. So you can't really say mine. Mine has to be a kind of person. It can't be the thermos. 
Okay, so this is how it gets, it's explained in a very interesting way. Okay, so mind then becomes uh, like the owner, the person who makes things mine. So somebody says, uh, what is, you know, uh, what is yours? This is mine. But when we say, what is the mine? In, uh, in terms of view of a personal identity, mine is the person who, as the possessor, yeah? And there's a lot of debate, at least it's interesting, you know, among the Galupas, there's a lot of debate about what the mine, what mine is. And I'm not sure about the other Tibetan uh, traditions, if they have as much debate about it. But the Galupas have a lot of debate. And I asked uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi when I was studying about the Theravada tradition, and he said, you know, there's no debate. Mine is just mine, you know. It's, yeah, the, how you use the word in conventional language, you know, this is mine. Mine is like the person who, yeah, who owns it. Okay. So there's many things to debate, and some people do find th those things to debate, and other people don't. <laughs> okay. Um, so clinging to the self is the force behind our afflictions and lies behind most of our self-centered actions that create destructive karma. Okay? Because the self, the I, is, uh, and here it's referring to our own I. Okay. So this is not the self of persons, the inherent existence of persons, because the self of persons is grasping onto all beings as inherently existent. The view of the personal identity is specific to oneself. Okay. And so this one is one of our biggest problems, yeah, because it's the one that is saying, I exist. Yeah. And I've been looking more about how that manifests, you know. And yes, it's I want to be happy. But I also see that one of the, the ways that the um, view of the personal identity operates is it screaming, I exist, because there's some very deep fear that I don't exist. You know? And that's the fear that comes up at death time, you know, for many people, that I'm going to disappear at the time of death. So to overcome that fear... And there is reason for that fear in the sense that we do not exist in the way we think we exist. So we do exist, but the person we think we are doesn't exist. Okay. So, uh, you know, you can see why is there all that fear of um, I don't exist because you know, how I am holding myself to exist as some kind of, you know, inherently existent, independent entity that can c 
control things or should control things and so on. Um, that kind of person doesn't exist. And who wants to admit that when your whole life has centered around it? And it's something innate. You didn't even learn it in this life. It's something that comes with you from one life to the next. Okay? Because, I mean, we see in all the other beings we encounter, yeah, everybody is holding on to, you know, I. Okay, so that clinging to the I in that certain way then is the basis on which we have attachment because we've got to make that I happy, anger at anything that interferes with the happiness of the I, you know, jealousy and pride because we compete with others and we are either better than them or worse than them. And laziness because, you know, the I needs to be taken care of (laughs) and pleased, you know, so all these different things. Okay, so clinging to the self is the force behind our afflictions and lies behind most of our self-centered actions that create destructive karma. It arises throughout our lives and is especially powerful as we are dying. This clinging may also adhere to a permanent self or soul or to a self-sufficient, substantially existent I and mine or to the inherently existent one. It may also motivate virtuous actions. Some people keep ethical conduct because they want their eternal self to be born in a heavenly realm. Yeah. Or you want to have a good rebirth. So there's grasping it. I want to have a good rebirth. Okay, so that was the third clinging. The fourth clinging is clinging to rules and practices. So this arises as a result of holding wrong views about dukkha and its causes. Okay, so about the first two of the four truths. It causes us to have distorted notions of ethical conduct or the path to liberation. Okay, so some of the usual ones that are given as examples, you know, come from the Buddhist time. Uh, And some of them exist now, too. So these include advocating extreme self-mortification by fasting for a long time. Okay, so the Buddha tried that out for, was it five years, six years? Got really thin. It was better than Weight Watchers, but it didn't uh, stop his attachment, and so he gave it up. Okay. it also includes sitting in fire. That's something that some of the non-Buddhist renunciates at the Buddha time, Buddhist time did. You sit in the midst of fire. Going naked in the cold. I heard that Catholic uh, monks in Ireland and, and UK um, would jump in the freezing water, freezing ocean water out. Uh, you know, off the islands uh, in an attempt to give up attachment to the body. That doesn't work very well. Okay. 
Um, you know, Catholics also do the the shirts, the um, what is, I keep forgetting what they're hair hair shirts. Yeah, okay, those kinds of things. It may also lead to unethical actions such as sacrificing animals to have good fortune. In Nepal, every autumn, there's a huge sacrifice of animals, yeah, uh, to the gods, to, you know, for the sake of good fortune. And it's awful to, to think of what these poor animals are going through. Okay. Um, thinking that, another one is thinking that flawless performance of rituals causes liberation. So, it's not transforming your mind during the ritual. It's doing the ritual exactly perfect. So this is something that the Brahmins were very uh, picky about, you know. Anyway, it's not just the Brahmins. Last week, one, um, one priest in, I forget where it was, he was reprimanded because when... He's been giving um, baptisms, doing baptisms for many years, and like hundreds, thousands of people have been baptized by him. But he would say, um, he would say, uh, we, uh, we now baptize you, you know, in the name of the na-na-na-na-na. And it's supposed to be, I now baptize you. And when the higher-ups in the church found that he was saying we instead of I, they said all of the baptisms he's done are invalid. And all those people need to be rebaptized. And if you haven't been baptized, then any of your other sacraments, they're also false. So... If you were confirmed, you have to get reconfirmed. And if you were married, sorry, you weren't really married all those years. And you have to get remarried because everything, but does that mean you were living in sin all those years? You know? And it's because the priest said, we, and said, yeah, we instead of I. Okay, so this emphasis on the, you know, performing the ritual perfectly rather than the emphasis being on transforming the mind. Okay, and some people can hold the precepts in that way too. Yeah, very, uh, in, in a very literal way that actually, um, makes it quite difficult for uh, uh, for the lay people. For example, you know, if we here, we live in the middle of nowhere, right? It takes at least an hour to drive here from one of the local cities, okay? So if we said that, uh, you know, if we followed the precepts, perfectly about eating, we would not cook, okay? Because cooking could involve killing animals, even though the situation with grain and vegetables and so on is very different than at the Buddhist time. And we very seldom find uh, little critters inside things, okay? 
but sometimes it does happen. So if we said, okay, we're not going to cook anything and we're only going to eat what people offer, then that means that somebody is going to have to uh, come up here having spent the whole morning cooking for however many people we have that day, now somewhere between 25, 30, somewhere like that, spent the whole morning cooking, driving up here, then they have to put it in our hands, okay? And then they usually wait to collect the dishes afterwards. Now, is that going to be convenient if, if we know the people who support us? Yeah, most of them work. Yeah, very few of them have the time to spend the morning cooking, let alone driving up here for an hour or more, serving the food and driving back, okay? So, you know, if we said, well, no, you know, people have to do that for us, yeah, they may go out of their way to do it for us because they like us and they have faith or whatever. But it's going to really mess up their lives, especially if people have kids and so on. Okay, so out of consideration for those people, you know, we eat only the food that's offered to us, but people can bring it whenever they want. They can give it to their friends to bring up, and then we cook it, okay? And so then uh, that doesn't inconvenience the lay people, and it also doesn't uh, use gasoline, you know, having people drive back and forth and back and forth every single day, polluting the air more and more, okay? So I'm not criticizing the people who keep the precepts like that, you know? That's their choice and that's their way of doing it and that's how they feel good about it, you know? Um, But there is a way in which you could even, uh, I mean, really overdo it in in many ways that would... uh, you know, bring a lot of uh, inconvenience to people or um, maybe even getting a little bit arrogant about how well we keep the precepts. Um, You know, there's all sorts of things that can happen, okay? So when it's talking here about this one of... um, of the view of, of rules and, and practices. It's, you know, talking about that kind of thing, you know, forgetting about the real underlying purpose and, and, and just valuing the action itself done in the prescribed way. That's one example of it, you know, or doing practices thinking that they would lead you to liberation, but they don't lead you to liberation, like animal sacrifice, sitting in the middle of fire, um, all sorts of things like this. Uh So when we think of uh, wrong views, you know, I gave a lot of the examples and things as they commonly give them from things uh, that happened in the Buddhist time. Oh, another thing. Uh, that happened at Buddhist time. 
and there's stories in the canon about this, uh, they were the dog renunciants, okay? And these are people who thought that if they acted like dogs in this lifetime, they would not be reborn as dogs in the future. So they would go to visit the Buddha, human beings go to visit the Buddha, walking on all fours, yeah, and, uh, you know, circumambulate the Buddha, that's what you did, and then they would curl up on the ground the way dogs do. You know, and that's how they would have their interview. So, um, you know, rather than that kind of thing, using up the karma to be reborn as a dog, I think it probably creates the karma to be reborn as a dog. Yeah. But if we look in the, in the new age marketplace, and not just there in, in standard, you know, religions, there's all sorts of beliefs about, uh, you know, what is the path to, uh, to purify your mind or to go to heaven or be a good person. And some of the beliefs are really, um, yeah, they're out there. And yet, you know, some people, uh, they base their lives on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, you know, talking in tongues. Yeah. How is it that people talk in tongues? And why is that seen as virtue? Yeah. Well, the belief is, I guess, that the Holy Ghost is behind it and speaking through you. Yeah. But, you know, and then you can start investigating those beliefs and seeing if they really hold water or not. Okay. And if, if doing that is the, is really the, the path to bring a good rebirth, let alone to, to bring liberation or awakening. Okay. Another thing that that pertains to is conflating meditative absorption with liberation. So we've talked about that before, the people who, uh, you know, um, meditate on shamatha or serenity and gain it and then mistake that for, uh, for liberation because their mind is so peaceful, you know. And so even um, before they have that experience, they may even have the view, oh, that, you know, getting born in the form realm or the formless realm, that is heaven, you know. That is where I want to be reborn, and then I will be there forever. Whereas uh, rebirth in those realms is not forever. Okay. So, you know, it's interesting. Spend some time listening to what other people think. Yeah. And what other people say and what people believe. And then, uh, you know, really think about it. You know, does it make sense when you use reasoning and logic, it, is it something that makes some sense? And I know for me, when I do this kind of thing, that this is what actually strengthens my faith in the Buddha Dharma, um, because it's, it's something that when you think about, uh, 
you know, there's good reasons for doing things. Yeah. It's not just blind belief with threats of uh, going to hell if, you're, if you don't do it. Okay, so these four types of clinging focus predominantly on distorted ideas and do not include all types of clinging. Okay, so it's, it's uh, emphasizing certain forms of clinging because they're very destructive. Okay, then clinging according to the Pali tradition. So craving can also mean to thirst for something we do not yet have. In the Pali scriptures, thirst is the, the word the, you know, that you use for attachment, craving, clinging. You thirst for it. You want it. You know, like when you're thirsty and you really want something to drink. Okay. And then uh, nirvana is quenches the thirst, or it's renunciation quenches the thirst. Okay, so craving can also mean to thirst for something we do not yet have, and clinging can also imply holding on to what we already have. So the three types of craving for sense, so they have the same three, for sense pleasures, existence, and non-existence, are generally directed towards what we do not yet have. Okay? So we do not yet have the sense pleasures. We want them. Existence is, you know, to be reborn in samsara. We want to continue to exist so we don't have our future life yet. Non-existence is the wish, the nihilistic wish to just, you know, cease altogether. That hasn't happened. Okay, so those are all things uh, that are, are generally directed towards what we do not yet have. While the four types of clinging for sense, sensual pleasure views, doctrine of self, and view of rules and practices are usually directed towards what we already hold. Okay, so we have these sense pleasures. We don't want to give them up. And then all these kinds of views, yeah, the uh, clinging to views, clinging to doctrines of self, the view of the rules and practices. We, ha- we hold those views very strongly already. We're clinging to them. Okay. Now, here, I, um, this next paragraph, uh, it would be good if, uh, you know, take it home with you and draw a diagram because it's comparing the three types of craving and the four types of clinging and how they link together and how they link with other things, okay? So the three types of craving and the four types of clinging are related. So if you have a chart on one side, you put the three kinds of uh, craving in a column down. On the other side, you put the four kinds of clinging Okay, in a column. So craving for sense sense pleasure, yeah, put your pen there, uh, may influence you to cling to certain views. And then you connect craving for sense pleasure with clinging to different kind of views. What is an example 
of how craving for sense pleasure may influence us to cling to certain views. Um, thinking that harmful drugs should be legal because we enjoy them. Mm. Yeah. Are not just legal, you know, thinking that they're good, that they're the path to awakening because we enjoy them. And there are many people that believe that. This whole ayahuasca thing, you know, that people want to do in in Dharma centers. And, uh, yeah, I read it. Where was it? In California. Yeah. One of the teachers at one of the centers was leading ayahuasca retreats. Yeah. And it made me think, well, if that were really the path to liberation, the Buddha would have taught it. Yeah, if that's really going to get you there quicker, the Buddha would have taught it. So I guess uh, those people think the Buddha maybe didn't teach the whole path or left out some important step or something. Yeah. Okay. Another example is uh, you have a group of friends and everybody holds a certain view. Uh, and so you adopt that view because you want to be friends with those people. Or you fall in love with, uh, with somebody who, you know, is a, I don't know, you know, what, who uh, uh, holds to some very extreme view. And you think that person is wonderful and you want to have a relationship with them, so you start believing what they believe too, because if you don't believe it, the relationship isn't going to make it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That might go along with thinking that monasticism is outdated um, because mm. people want to have relationships and sexual yeah. encounters. Yeah. Yeah, clinging to sense pleasure, so you have that feeling. Yeah, monasticism outdated. Those people are so uptight. Yeah. They're not in touch with their body. They're uptight. They're old-fashioned. Yeah. And you wanted to say to them, well, the Buddha was a a monastic. Do you think the Buddha was uptight and old-fashioned and out of touch with reality? Um, so you, you see the, the line, you know, from craving for sense pleasure to maybe clinging to certain views. Okay, thinking that the purpose of life is simply to enjoy sense pleasures could lead us to breach ethical conduct by stealing, lying, or having an affair. People do that all the time, okay? And craving for sensual pleasure in future lives, so to breach ethical conduct. So that would be uh, clinging to rules and practices. Yeah, rules and observances, because you're practicing incorrect ethical conduct. Okay, so you've drawn a, a line there. Craving for sense pleasure in future lives could uh, lead you to holding the views of rules and practices 
for example, believing that killing infidels will bring a heavenly rebirth with many sense pleasures. So you have craving for sense pleasure in your next life. And this is a tenant of one religion that exists nowadays. You know, kill the infidels. And then that is, you know, creating such good energy that you will have a good rebirth. Craving for existence, which accompanies the internalistic view. So that's one of the extreme views. Now, the view of absolutism. So that leads easily leads to clinging to a doctrine of self as well as clinging to views. Okay, so you can connect those together. And then craving for non-existence, which often accompanies the nihilistic view, could lead to clinging to views and to the view of rules and practices. Because if you have... a uh, you know, the nihilistic view, you crave for non-existence, just, you know, like go out of existence because everything's too painful. Okay. So that could uh, lead to clinging to views because one of the uh, extreme views is nihilism. Okay. And it could also lead to view of the rules and practices. For example, thinking suicide is is the way to have happiness and, you know, when it's not. Okay, for example, thinking that nothing exists after death, someone could think that it doesn't matter how they act as long as the authorities do not find out. And a lot of people think that. I thought that at one point in my life and create a lot of non-virtue under the influence of that thought. Okay, so you're drawing lines between all these different things and then making examples for yourself to see how they connect. Yeah, if you do that, it really helps you understand what these things are about. Okay, clinging to wrong views, rules of uh, views of rules and practices, and view of a personal identity are abandoned at stream entry when the fetters of doubt, view of rules and practices, and the view of personal identity are eliminated. So this is according to the, the, the path of the four approachers and the four abiders uh, to stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and anhatcha. And that, uh, you know, as, and that's the standard practice, uh, taught in the Pali tradition, although they do have a bodhisattva path as well. Okay. But um, to attain uh, stream entry, yeah, uh, when you attain stream entry, clinging to wrong views is gone. And, you know, for, the, for uh, stream entry is having the insight into nirvana. And it's interesting, you know, how nirvana is explained in many ways it's very similar to how emptiness is explained in the in the uh, sanskrit tradition but in other ways it's not exactly the same okay but um okay but uh okay so clinging to wrong views is done when when you uh, realize nirvana, 
Okay, so this is your first realization of nirvana. It's not the full, complete nirvana. Okay, so you can see how if you've realized emptiness, yeah, a lot of your wrong views are not going to hold up anymore. Okay, rules of view, views of rules and practices, they aren't going to hold up anymore either when you've seen reality. Okay, and view of a personal identity, you know, when you realize emptiness, that that's going to be diminished. Now, what's interesting is in the Pali tradition, they say view of personal identity when you, your first, uh, this is a, a equivalent to the path of seeing, your first realist, uh, direct perception, let's say, of emptiness or of nirvana. They say that the view of, of a personal identity is completely gone after that. Okay. The Sanskrit tradition says, uh-uh, <laughs> you know, at, at the path of seeing, you're only getting rid of acquired afflictions. Yeah, And this affliction is not an acquired one. It's a very, very deep-seated, innate one that if your bodhisattva is not eliminated until the eighth bhumi, yeah, the eighth ground, which is on the path of meditation, so it's a long ways up there, okay? Okay, so it's interesting how these things are, are the paths, the difference in how the paths are described. Uh, this comes in Courageous Compassion, Volume 6, if you want to read ahead. Okay, doubt is also uh, finished at, uh, at stream entry, and that makes sense, too, because if you've had that uh, understanding of nirvana or of, or of emptiness, then, you know, you've had experience, so you're not going to have that doubt anymore. Okay. Okay. Clinging to sense pleasure decreases when one becomes a once-returner. Okay. So clinging to sense pleasure and malice, those two, or ill will, they sometimes translate it, those two are decreased uh, when you attain stream, uh, uh, when you attain once returner, okay? And that's why you never, uh, at once returner, you don't get born in the desire realm anymore, okay? Because uh, clinging to sensual pleasure and malice, you're not going to, you're not going to have. And those are two really big causes to be reborn in the desire realm. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have the, because the desire realm is all about sensual pleasure. So, you know, at, at uh, once returner, you've really decreased those. I actually, once, re, I'm sorry, once returner, you're only reborn one more time in the desire realm. Yeah. And then non returner. At, at non-returner, then uh, clinging to sense objects and uh, and malice are are gone, and so you never again get reborn in in the um, desire realm. And then at arhat, then all clinging uh, has been abandoned, and all of the other afflictions and fetters and so forth. Okay, then the reflection, identify moments of each of the four types of clinging in your experience. Okay, so do this this next week. Yeah, 
and bring in some examples. So the, these three here are your homework for next week. And then how do they affect your life? So the four types of clinging, how do they affect your life? Yeah. So this will really give you a chance to look at some of the views you cling on to. Yeah. And, and some of the views we cling on to may be the, may be what, uh, when we encounter resistance in our practice, very often what the resistance is based on is some kind of view that we're really hanging on to. Yeah. Okay, and then what ideas do you have for counteracting these kinds of uh, clinging? Okay, so let's pause here. Any questions? Uh, Craving, clinging. We're all kind of professionals in them, aren't we? But we just don't know it. Yeah, we have to realize how we have these down pat. Okay, no questions? Then we'll go on to the 10th link called Renewed Existence. Uh, Sometimes uh, the Tibetans usually translate it as just plain existence. That's usually just the word, the one word that in Pali and Sanskrit. But I like the translating it as renewed existence because it really gets at what is happening. Because we say the link of existence, that doesn't move us. Well, yeah, I exist. Yeah, so what? Okay, because we don't really understand what it means when we say the link of existence. Renewed existence. I exist in samsara. I'm renewing my membership in samsara. Okay. Yeah. There's. I'm registering to vote, and there's no hindrances to my voting and to be in samsara. Okay. Yeah. Nobody's taking my vote away when I vote to be in samsara. So I'm renewing my existence. My driver's license existence in samsara, my voting rights in samsara, I, you know, yeah. So I, I think that term really gives us a feeling of, like, what's happening, and it makes you go, uh, do I really want to renew? Yeah. You know how if, if you belong to a country club or 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 you know there's a swimming pool, a local swimming pool. You know you have to pay dues every year and renew your registration so you can go. Yeah, they send you a little ticket, you know, little envelopes. You know, please renew your membership. You know, they do this in temples and churches and and religious organizations too. You know. Charge, you know, renew by paying such and such and such to be a member of the swimming club and the golf course and the church or the temple or the whatever it is. Yeah. And we sign up. And even though we have to pay, you know, I'm sorry, we don't have to pay anything. It's free. Yeah. Free. 
totally free. Yeah. Why are, do we want to sign up? Renew our membership in samsara? Do it all over again? Yeah. We've been going on the merry-go-round since beginningless time. Do we want it to stop or do we want to keep on it? You know, we're on our little horsey on the merry-go-round, going up and down, up and down, up and down. You know, do we want to get off the horsey or we want to keep going? Interesting, isn't it? You know, you've been doing it since beginningless time and you're not bored yet. Still searching for, you know, something exciting, meaningful that will prove that I really exist and I am fantastic. Yeah. So I want to sign up again. Cuckoo. (laughs) Cuckoo. (laughs) So renewed existence is the factor existing in the nature of the ripening aggregates. So ripening aggregates means the body and mind of the future life. Okay, so the factor existing in the nature of the ripening aggregates, bound by afflictions. Okay, and so the factor which is the potential of karma made stronger by craving and clinging. Okay, so karma, what link was that? Two. Second link, way back, way back. But that link of karma, you know, which is the karmic seed or the having ceased of the action. Okay. It was planted in the mind stream, so to speak. And then it got fertilized and watered by craving and clinging. When you fertilize and water and put the right amount of heat you know, then what happens to the seed? It starts to transform. Yeah, it starts to grow and bring its result. So that is what is happening here. Okay, that karma, the action that we did, you know, with the trace planted on the mind stream was fertilized And instead of just lying there dormant, it's like, yeah, starting to to get some little activity, yeah? So, as a cause of birth, renewed existence refers not to the state a being will be reborn into. So, it's not the next life but to the karmic force that leads to rebirth in that state, okay? So renewed existence is 
that karmic seed that is starting to bring the result of the aggregates in the next life. It's not the aggregates in the next life. hasn't happened yet. Yeah, but that seed is, you know, it's getting there and it's going to sprout soon. So renewed existence occurs the moment that all the causes for the future life have been completed in this life. Okay, so all the you have the principal cause, that karmic seed, and you have the conditions of craving and clinging. Yeah, so everything, all of that stuff is completed in this life. And it's the ripening of the karmic seed that is just about to produce the next life. Okay, so, you know, the jack in the box? Yeah, the jack, jack is under the, the lid, but your finger's right on the button and just starting to push it. And so very soon, boom, jack in the box is going to pop up. Okay. Now, every time you go for fast food at Jack in the Box, hopefully you'll think of some, you'll think of the 12 links of dependent arising. Okay. So the karma that projects the rebirth was the second link. It ceased whenever it was earlier this life or in a previous life. That action ceased, depending upon when we did it. And its continuation exists as a having ceased and a karmic seed. Renewed existence is the fully nourished karmic seed. And that uh, fully nourished karmic seed and the fully nourished karmas having ceased that have the potential to produce a new birth in cyclic existence. Okay, so renewed existence is another form of karma. When we look at the 12 links, yeah, they say three, two, and seven. Three of the links are afflictions. Guess what they are? Ignorance, craving, grasping, uh, clinging. Those three are ignorance. Two are karma. Which two? Formative action and renewed existence. And then the seven are results. What are they? Consciousness, name and form, six sources, contact, feeling, Birth, aging, and death. Okay, so those are the results. So just as we've always learned, afflictions are the cause of karma. And karma 
is what brings results in our life. So here, here it is in the 12 links laid out like that. You would think that it would lay three afflictions, then two karmas, then anna. No, it doesn't. They're all mixed up, but you can see how they link together. And uh, the next chapter will will really go into that, how the different links relate to each other. Okay. The link of renewed existence occurs in two stages. Okay, the entering stage is the fully nourished potency that is directed towards the next life. Okay, so that potency that's, you know, that's in the karma or in the having ceased, that's going to bring the next life. It occurs in the present life before death. The entered stage of renewed existence is the fully nourished karma uh, potency during the bardo between two lives. Okay, so the bardo, yes, it's between two lives, but it's usually considered the next life. Yeah, because you're the karma is ripening, you have a bardo body that resembles the body of the realm you're going to be born into. Yeah, unless something interferes with that karma in the bardo and another karma ripens instead. But barring that, yeah, the bardo body is, uh, it's a, it's not made of flesh and blood, but it's in the, for the shape and so on that resembles the next life. Okay. So there are three kinds of renewed ex- existence corresponding to the three realms of samsara, samsaric existence. Now, so the renewed existence of the desire realm, where the karma is ripening to be reborn in the desire realm, the renewed existence of the formless realm, where the karma is ripening to be born in the, uh, in the uh, form realm, I'm sorry, and then the renewed existence of the formless realm, where the karma is ripening to be born there. Okay, so renewed existence is a case of giving the name of the result to the cause. So remember this, it comes a lot. If you cannot uh, make sense about why something is called the name, a certain name, very often it's because they're giving the name of the result to the cause. Okay, so here, renewed existence implies the next life, the existence in the next, next life. But it's an example of giving the name of the result, the next life, renewed existence, to the cause, which is the ripened karma that is fully ready to, you know, it's completely nourished and ready to to bring forth the result. Okay, so, uh, for example, after planting a sprout, we say, I, pl- uh, I planted a tree. And we say that all the time. You watch in the springtime. Yeah, I'm going to go plant flowers. Uh, what are you planting? You're planting seeds. Yeah, unless you bought the flowers at the store. Uh, but barring that, 
you know, last summer when we had all those um, sunflowers. sunflowers, yeah, yeah, we said we're planting sunflowers. Everybody understands what we meant. They knew that we weren't planting grown sunflowers. Yeah, we were planting sunflower seeds. Yeah. So it's a way we use language that, you know, we all understand it. And conventionally, uh, you know, it's okay because we don't, we're not grasping at inherent existence at that point, at the, as the seed, you know, being the inherent cause of the result or the, the flower being the inherent result of the seed. Okay. So, yeah, I'm planting flowers. I'm planting a tree. Really? <laughs> planting some round thing that's this big. Yeah. It's amazing, our big trees. Do you ever think that they started out with something this big? Okay. So uh, we say, I planted a tree, giving the name of the resultant tree to the sprout that was its cause. Renewed existence is analogous to a seed, the second link, planted in the field, the third link, that is nourished by water and sunshine, links eight and nine. And the potential of that seed is now ready. That is link 10, renewed existence. And then it is the cause that brings the result to become a sprout, which is link 11, which is birth. Okay. So our time is up. Okay, so we got as far as birth, and now we're going to next week go back and review the whole process again. And again, and again, and again. Oh, and there was a, a question here. Um, maybe I'll save the question for next week if it's okay. <laughs>